0: If you have your Bible with you this morning, why don't you open it up to uh, Luke chapter 18. Tell you about an incident I had happen um, in my life while you're turning there. So sometimes God, God brings need, people who, who need God right to your front door. And um, yesterday a car pulled in my driveway. Now, mind you, there was an electrician working at my house and <clears throat> um, we were busy with things outside, and I saw this car pull up the drive, didn't know who it was, didn't recognize the car, and as I got closer to the driveway, I saw four people in the car. Um, two people got out, came to the door, holding little pamphlets under their arm. You've had this happen to you, I bet, <laughs> okay? Um, so as I get closer, I look to see if those pamphlets are what I think they are, and sure enough, it says the watchtower on it, and Individuals are Jehovah's Witness. Now, um, I have an electrician there who I'm paying an hourly rate to, and I'm thinking in my mind, I really want to get on to the things that we're supposed to be doing. So, in that moment, I have a choice. Um, Do I dismiss them and tell them, I've got other things to do, I'm really not interested, go away? Um, Or do I engage them in conversation? I chose the latter. And I, I let them start out with their, their spiel. Um, it's very hard to get a word in, you know, when they start the first three-minute thing. And um, as, as they got a little bit further in and telling me about the purpose of the Jehovah's Witness, um, I stopped them and said, um, I'm a pastor, and um, I lead a fairly theologically-based church over in the Hazlitt area. And in that moment, it was so fun to watch their eyes Um, sparkle open. Um, Vernon, the the lead individual, said to me, "Um, no one's ever told us before that they're a pastor when we come to the door. We're not sure why. I'm sure we've talked to pastors before, but they don't typically tell us. I said, well, I'm not sure why either, um, but I would like to explain to you the error of what you're presenting to which I heard, oh, we're not in error. And I said, oh, yes, you're in error, and let me help you with this. So we began what turned into a 15-minute conversation. Um, Here's the, the, the remarkable thing and the reason I'm telling you. If we really believe that we serve a God who will do exceedingly abundantly beyond all we can ask or imagine, we have to think in moments like that, or in moments like Nate and Courtney were talking about, when we hear there's 7,000 freshmen coming on campus, that it's really in the best interest of the kingdom, in God's best interest, his desire, that he would see people come to know who Jesus Christ is. Okay? So the reason I'm telling you this is I want you this morning to begin thinking of people in your life whom you know who are living in darkness So, for the sake of the Jehovah's Witness standing at my door, I said to them, Here is the problem, and here is where we differ. You do not believe that Jesus Christ is the living Son of God, the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, the Majesty on High. You believe he is a created man. You believe that he is no more than a man, although elevated to a position of greatness. But you deny him his majesty and his glory and his honor. And my God says that if you deny Jesus before men, Jesus will deny you before his Father in heaven. And there is where we err and where we differ. They began to ask me questions. So, last night I was sharing this with a Saturday night crowd and I was reminded among people that were there that there are people in our church who used to be Jehovah's Witness who have now come to Jesus Christ because someone was willing to share the truth with them. I don't know what God's doing in Vernon's heart this morning. I'm going to pray at the end of the service after you hear what I'm about to teach for people like Vernon. I think you have people in your life who are living in darkness who do not really understand who Jesus is. So I'm going to ask you to be thinking about that individual as we move forward this morning. So join me in Luke chapter 18. And in order for you to do that, I'm going to ask you to do one thing. I'm going to ask you just for two minutes to close your eyes and I'm going to allow you to enter into the world of another person for a moment. If you just close your eyes for a second. The person whose world you're entering into is blind, and in this moment you're in first century Jericho, and it is at the height of its splendor. It's approximately 30 A.D., and day after day after day, you arrive at your place on the side of the street. You sit on a curb. Someone helped you there because you can't find your way there on your own. You've heard of the stunning beauty of the palm trees, but you've never seen them. People walk by you daily, not only talking about you as though you don't exist, but they, they talk about the splendor of Herod's new winter palace with fountains and pools. And, and they say it rivals Caesar's palace in Rome. You can, you can smell oh, the fruit trees and the rose gardens. The groves are surrounding the city and they permeate the air with the smell of fruit. But you've never actually even seen a blossom as a bee pollinates it in the spring. You have felt the warmth of the Mediterranean sun on your face, but you can only imagine a sunset. You can open your eyes now. This individual whom I've just described to you is very real, knows the emotions that you and I know, the same feelings that you and I would have. This individual doesn't even know what he looks like, but yet he's felt tears going down his face, but has never seen a tear. His world is black. His face is very worn and very, very tired. That's who you find in Luke chapter 18 this morning. So if you join me, and you'll see it on the screen as well, we see this blind man in Luke 18, verse 35, whom Jesus encounters. And this is how it starts out. As Jesus was approaching Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the road, begging. Now hearing a crowd going by, he began to inquire what this was. They told him that Jesus of Nazareth was passing by. So we're told he's approaching Jericho. Jericho literally means the perfumed one. That's the literal meaning of the name. Why? Because we're told that people miles in advance of arriving at Jericho could begin smelling the citrus groves and the rose gardens because Herod had gone to great length to construct for himself a magnificent city. This particular area was originally cultivated as a plantation. The area of Jericho was put in place for balsam trees and for fruit vineyards and for fig trees and for citrus groves and herod liked it so well we're talking about herod the great that he decided to build a palace for himself there and so he took a 25 acre section and he erected a winter palace now jerusalem is only 15 miles away but jerusalem is at a different elevation it's a much colder elevation and in the winter time the area around jericho is much much warmer And when there's snow in Jerusalem, there's no snow on the ground in Jericho. And so that's the winter palace for Herod. That's where he wants to reside. And so as a result of the king moving there and putting a palace up for himself, all the movers and shakers in Israel decide they want a vacation home there as well because he begins to construct ponds and pools, and it's beautiful. It, It rivals Rome. He decides to spend a lot of money. So vacationers begin showing up there. Now, one thing you may not know about this particular passage is that when you see that there's a blind person outside of Jericho, there's an important reason why. Because the balsam orchards that were put in place there, it was believed that the oil of the balsam tree would treat blindness and would treat infections in the eye. And so not just a few beggars showed up at Jericho, but lots and lots of blind beggars showed up outside the gates of this vacation town because it's a jewel in a barren wilderness. It's where people want to be. And as a consequence of the fact that there's this unusually large number of blind people in the area, we find one blind man among what might have been hundreds begging at the gate, which is what people typically did when they were begging because vacationers were coming in and out of the gates of the city. Now, when you come to this passage, you find a little bit of a discrepancy. You you find this one that you're looking at in Scripture, and and people use this. I've heard individuals challenge the authenticity of the Bible based on this story because what you see here in Luke 18.35, it says Jesus was approaching Jericho. Let me show you another passage. This is Mark's version, Mark 10.46. It says this, Then they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples, a large crowd, a blind beggar named Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, You see the difference? One says he was approaching, one says he was leaving. And individuals look at that and say, see, you can't trust the Bible. It's inconsistent. It doesn't have things accurately. One guy says he was there leaving, one guy says he was there approaching. Well, here's why. There were two Jerichos. There's the Jericho of the Old Testament, the one that you understand that Joshua entered in and the Jericho that was dismantled, and God said it will never be rebuilt again, but the foundation stones were still there. It was still known as the Old Jericho. And people went to visit it as an archaeological site. But there was the new Jericho, the one that Herod built. And so you have one author, like at an accident scene, seeing one thing, Jesus is leaving the old Jericho, and another author writing, Jesus is approaching the new Jericho. That's why you see what you see here. So we've got this vivid account from these eyewitnesses that were here, and they're telling us that this blind man is sitting by the road, and he's begging. Beggars finally commonly found at the gates of the city, and they've got their cloak spread out in front of them so that people, when they throw money at them, can let it land on the cloak. They don't have to actually stop and talk to them. They just pitch it at them, and it lands on their jacket or their, their clothing. So this is a great place for this person to be if he's in desperate financial need. This, this is like being on Rodeo Drive in Beverly Hills. Eventually, somebody's going to pull up with a limousine, and they're going to give you something because they're wealthy. Now, in the Middle East, blindness was not that uncommon. a matter of fact, a very large population of people in the Middle East became blind because of a fly that landed on the eyes of infants while they were sleeping. And it would lay eggs on their eye at night. And if parents didn't catch it, it would cause an infection. And eventually their eye would become opaque and they wouldn't be able to see. How this person lost his eyesight, we don't know. But we understand that those missing one of their five senses immediately their other senses kick in. Their hearing, their smell, their sense of touch becomes that much more acute. Well, it doesn't take a special ability to realize this crowd of people in front of him is way different than normal. He can hear the pushing and the shoving and it's a large crowd. According to what Matthew says in Matthew 20, it's a really big crowd that's following Jesus. Why? It's at the apex of his notoriety. It's one week before the crucifixion. That means it's Passover. And everybody who's anybody is coming in towards Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. It's electric in the air. It's a party environment. So this large crowd is more than just mildly excited. And obviously, this man sitting on the curb hears what's going on. And he says, what's going on? Can't see it. So someone responds, Yahashua is walking right in front of you. Go with me to verse 38. And he called out saying, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. Now understand what he's using in this phrase right here is Jesus' name and Jesus' title. And there's something very remarkable about what he's saying in the context of what he's saying and when he's saying it. Apparently, he's heard of Jesus. And he begins calling out his name. It's not a confusing title that he's using, but it's one that this crowd does not appreciate. First of all, understand this crowd is on their way to Jerusalem. They want to get to the party. They don't want anybody interrupting their party environment. And he begins shouting, and this crowd is loud, so he's going to shout all the louder. And in the context of what he says and when he says it, no wonder they want to silence him. First of all, people of this era, in the first century, they have no regard for people with disabilities. As a matter of fact, they believe that they're that way because God's punishing them and so to throw a coin might be the most they would do for them they would never dare engage into relationship with them and in this context here we understand this man is amazing not because he's blind physically but because he can see spiritually he can see something beyond what everyone else sees He knows that Jesus is someone remarkable. How does this blind guy sitting on the curb have any idea that God is interested in him in the least? How does he know that God is willing to heal him? He doesn't. He doesn't know. He doesn't know that God is willing to stop what he's doing in that moment and take time for him, but he's willing to, to ask. He's willing to ask God for big things in his life. He's willing to say, God, would you do something bigger than most would ever dare to ask or imagine? Something exceedingly wild beyond my imagination to heal a blind man. See, we're told that these healings that Jesus did As we read them, looking back on them historically, we think, well, wherever Jesus went, he's healing people. I mean, like his shadow falls on people and they're being healed. No, that's not the case. There's a lot of people being healed, but represented by the thousands and millions of people living in the vicinity at that time, it, it was a small margin of people And so for a a blind person to be healed is exceptional. Look at what John wrote on the screen in John 9.32 when he says that these kind of healings were extraordinary. It says this, Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Now let's think about this title that this man's using. He's blind, sitting on the curb, and he hears that Jesus is in front of him, and he begins calling out, Son of David, have mercy on me. Understand, the title, Son of David, is the equivalent of saying, Son of God, Messiah. Now, up until this point, Jesus has not encouraged people to refer to Him as Messiah because it would have interrupted His plans. In the Jewish world, that would have been an explosive title to use. And know that this is no helpless feeble cry it's very very loud it's very very insistent so in your bible when it says he's calling out or he's crying out it's this word you're going to see on the screen it's in your notes as well it's the word kradzo to cry out like a trapped animal you know how this word was always used it was used of insane people and women in childbirth <laughs> women in childbirth have felt insane Men who have been in delivery rooms have heard women crying out and you know what that sounds like, guys, right? You did this to me! (laughs) Not just that. That sound of, oh! Now, amplify that by, Jesus! Son of David! And you can understand the word "krodzo." It's where we get the word crying or crazy from. Someone who's screaming out. And according to what's written in the Greek language here, this is a continued action. He keeps on, son of David, son of David, son of David, son of David, trying to get Jesus' attention. He won't shut up. And the crowd is really beginning to amplify in his direction to shut him down. You're going to see that in just a moment. What would you do in his sandals? What if your world was black? What if you showed up on the curb every morning? What if you were the beggar? What length would you go to? He's convinced the Son of God will be interested in his desperate situation. What length is he willing to go to? How desperate is your situation this morning? How far are you willing to go to get God's attention? Let's let's look at how the crowd treated him. Go with me to verse 39. Those who led the way were sternly telling him to be quiet, but he kept crying all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Now this word sternly is a very polite way in the language when it was written of saying, Shut up! Now, in in the Greek language, when they're telling him this, it's a command. It's a rebuke. So the leaders of the crowd are saying to him, Shut up! Silence! And it's written in such a way that there's retribution with it. So this man is crying out. And I want you to notice, it's not his first attempt. He's been going on and on and on and on. And they yell and they yell and they yell at him. It's not his first attempt, but did God hear him the first time? If he had just sat on the curb and said, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me, would Jesus have known that he was asking? We're told that Jesus was so sensitive to the things going on around him that even when he was in a crowd and a woman touched out and grabbed a hold of his robe, he immediately knew that that woman had touched him. Did God hear this man the first time he cried out? You know he did. And yet he's allowing something to go on. He's allowing this interaction to take place. And so the man keeps crying out all the more, according to verse 39. I like this guy. I want to meet him when I get to heaven. I'm going to look him up. He just keeps shouting even though the crowd shuts him down. So what's God doing here? God's allowing persistence. God's allowing resolve. God's allowing desperation to prove itself in this man's life. I meet people who are so intimidated, who are so subdued by the struggles that they're in the midst of, that they give up. Because they arrive at a conclusion. They either believe that one God's too big and he doesn't care and he's not interested in my little issue and it doesn't rise to the level of importance, so fine, I'm off. I'll stop praying about it. Or other individuals decide to take it on as a do-it-yourself project and they don't need God to intervene on their behalf. That's generally what happens. What's different about this guy? What motivates him? Other than the obvious, I mean, he's blind. We already have established that fact. He's dark, he's blind, he can't see. What motivates him? The understanding, the unequivocal understanding that he's got God in his midst, even though he can't see him. That's you and me this morning. God's right here. We can't see him. But we understand the one before us is capable of doing exceedingly, abundantly beyond all that we can ask or imagine if it fits within the context of his will. And so this one is convinced the one whom he cannot see, the one before him is capable of freeing him. Now, he gets so loud, apparently Jesus decides just to stop the crowd. Now, I'm I'm thinking in this moment, this title really caught Jesus' attention. So if you're like me, you're thinking there was probably a grin on Jesus' face at this moment when he hears, Son of David. Why? Because publicly, that title had never been used in the 33 years that Jesus walked planet Earth. Do you know the last time that it had been used? Luke chapter 1, you can look up the birth account of Jesus. The angels showed up and said to Mary, He will inherit the throne of His Father. David. See the angels knew the title of Jesus, the son of David. No man had dared let it enter his lips until this blind guy on the side of a curb who's been begging his entire life and he's convinced he's got the son of God in his midst and so he's willing to declare it. That's why I think Jesus smiled because he heard the name that he knew was his name, the title which is above every name. The one that says he's the ruler, he's the king. So it stops. Jesus, go with me to verse 40. It says this, and Jesus stopped and commanded that he be brought to him. Now stop short there in verse 40 with me just for a moment. In that stopping, in God's stopping as he's moving forward, there's volumes of information about the nature and the character of your God that's communicated right there. What takes place in the next few moments between the creator and the created is absolutely priceless. First, understand that unlike the crowd, Jesus doesn't say to him, shh, be quiet. Jesus doesn't reject the title. He doesn't shut him down. He receives what this man has said, and he doesn't reject it. To the Jews, that title was the one title that belonged to the one person who is the Son of God. Go with me now into verse 40 again, the rest rest of it in part B, and it says, and when he came near, he, meaning Jesus, questioned him, what do you want me to do for you? We get a nice touch from an eyewitness. Peter was there, and we understand that Mark... Who, the book of, who wrote the book of Mark, was a boy when all these things took place. And as he became a man when he was older in the church, Peter was the one who dictated to Mark all the eyewitness things that he saw. And we believe that this is Peter speaking here, so look with me on the screen at Mark 10.49 for this eyewitness account. And Jesus stopped and said, call him here. So they called the blind man, saying to him, take courage, stand up, he is calling for you. You can read the rest of yourself later today in Mark chapter 10, but it says, he threw his cloak aside. Here's why that's really significant. For a blind beggar on the street, this is his sleeping bag. This is what covers him at night. This is his bank account. This is what he spreads out before him that people throw money onto. And he's so excited that Jesus has called him. He knows what's about to happen. That he's going to encounter the living God. He's so excited that he throws his cloak aside. Meaning, I don't need that anymore. I'm going to see the king. And the king is about to say to him, what do you want me to do for you? If you and I could wake up every single morning with that phrase on our mind, both of us asking God that question and knowing that it is the nature and the character of our God to say, what can I do for you? We would pray entirely differently if we could keep it in the frame of our mind that our God wants to show himself powerful, exceedingly, abundantly, beyond all that we could ask or imagine. A blind man is about to be given his sight. And here's what's fascinating to me. That Jesus even asked the question. He's blind. He's sitting in a gutter with a cloak and he's begging for money. Can't God see what his need is? Does God have to be told what his need is? Or is God allowing that man to articulate specifically what he wants God to do in his life. Have you ever been that specific with God? This guy gets it quickly, very, very clear, very, very pure, very, very direct about what his need is and what his want is. I find people pray in two different ways. They either pray that God would do this. God, bless the whole world. God, help all the missionaries in Africa. And they never get specific and say, God, I know of a missionary in Africa who needs a motorcycle and they need gas in their tank. Today, would you meet their need at the point of their need? That's praying specifically. This guy gets it. Look at his response in verse 41, the rest of it in part B. And he said, Lord, I want to regain my sight. I want to see, is that specific enough for you? Have you ever been this clear with God about your needs and your wants in your life? Have you ever come to the one who says, what can I do for you? And respond to him that specifically. Father, I'm I'm about to walk into an environment where I'm going to be interviewed and I need this job desperately, God. Would you go before me, soften the heart of the individual who I'm going to be interviewed by. Father, you know that my car just broke down and I don't have money in the bank and I need help financially. Father, I just had a man by the name of Vernon at my door who is not a believer in Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, he denies the authority of Jesus Christ and the majesty and the splendor of your son. He needs to know Jesus. Will you convict his heart? Have you ever prayed that specifically? That's what God is asking this man to do. Look at his response in verse 42. And Jesus said to him, Receive your sight. Your faith has made you well. Now, we get a really interesting insight in Matthew of the same situation because Matthew was there also. He saw this, and he gives us an eyewitness account. Look with me on the screen at just two words. It says, Jesus had compassion and touched him. If you've been at New Hope very long, you've heard me use this word before. It sounds like a spaghetti dish, splagnizomahi, and and it's the word for compassion. In the Greek language, you couldn't use this word without some exaggeration to it. So this is how it was used. Because what it meant was your gut ached. That's compassion, the way that it's used here of Jesus. And the next word that's attached to it is this word haptomai that's in your notes this morning. So Jesus had compassion and he touched this person, meaning he didn't just put his fingers on his eyelashes or on his eyebrows. He literally fastened his hands to this man's face and took a hold of him. And so with an ache in his gut, the Son of God attached himself and the creator of the universe reached across the very face that he had formed himself. And in that moment, nerve endings that were dead, the synoptic nerves sparked to life where there was darkness that had dominated, light exploded on the scene, and his optic nerves come alive, and he can see red and yellow and blue and birds and bees and flowers and the eyes of the Son of the living God looking right back in his, sparkling with delight and joy and tenderness. According to verse 42, what was it that made him well? I hear whispers. Yeah, God said, your faith has made you well. Last week we established the fact that that means leaning into his power, leaning into his capacity to do what could not be done in any other way. Your faith has made you well. Faith then is the means, it's not the cause. Faith is the means of God's activity, it's not the cause of the healing. So he recognizes Jesus has the authority to do what needs to be done and he's gonna lean into Jesus and because he's got faith in what God can do exceedingly abundantly beyond what anyone could ask or imagine, he's willing to say, I wanna see, go with me to verse 43, this is how it ends. Immediately he regained his sight And began following him, glorifying God. And when all the people saw it, they gave praise to God. He starts singing the doxology. He's pretty excited, wouldn't you be? Now, he's no longer got better clothes. He doesn't have a pair of sunglasses even. He's still dirt poor. But he's excited. Why? Because he's been set free. Jesus has taken a hold of him. So praise is the natural outflow of what God has done in your life. That's why he begins to praise God, because God's been active. Now, a couple things just to leave you with as you go out this morning. Think of the fact that Mark recorded his name. He said, His name is Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus. He's no longer listed as the beggar on the street, the blind guy sitting outside the gate. You know what that tells me? It tells me that a relationship had been established. By the time Mark wrote what he wrote, this guy's part of the church and he could point to him and say, this guy, this one right over here, it's the one that Jesus touched, Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus. We have relationship with him. All because this man was willing to take this first step and go to God boldly and ask for something that other people were not willing to ask for because we know in Jericho there were lots of other blind people. But God had the ability right there in front of him. The guy had to take advantage of that fact. That God is willing to do what he needs to do in your jobs, in your relationship, in your school, if we would just ask. So like we learned with Joshua... Joshua learning to be trusting of God and that God is faithful to his word. Like we learned with the disciples, they needed to learn what it was to lean into God's power. We now learn this morning, we've got to be bold in the ask. And if I'm not bold, if I don't come to God with the ask, it reveals a lack of faith on my part. Because here's what it really reveals. Either I think I don't need the help or I believe that he can't or he won't. And in either case, I'm doubting the power and the goodness of God in my life. When God says, what can I do for you? (laughs) That one should last with you a long, long time. So I'm going to pray for Vernon right now. I hope you have a person on your mind that you can lift up to God, whether you do it silently or you do it out loud. There's a lot of Vernons in our world who are living in darkness. Would you pray with me about that? Okay, let's pray together. Father, we come to you, first of all, recognizing you are holy and you are mighty and you are majestic. And you yourself declared that Jesus is your beloved son. The one in whom we know redemption through. It's in his name we come before you asking for the Vernons of our world. God, you might even surprise me personally and cause Vernon to show up here at church. I don't know. But there's a lot of names on the minds of our church right now represented by all the services that took place and all the individuals that have been here, many names are being lifted up to you, God, of those who are living in darkness who need to know the light. Father, we ask that you would bring conviction where conviction is necessary and that you would reveal truth where that is necessary. For us personally, God, as we take on this week, I ask for our church that you would help us to learn what it is to be bold in the ask and be willing to accept your answer. But God, right now it's enough to know that you're willing to say, what can I do for you? I love that about your nature and your character that you're thinking of us. Remind us with that, Father, as we go out this morning. We ask this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.